Good afternoon and welcome to our latest classical conversation presented by the Seattle Chamber of Music Society. I'm Dave Beck with 94.9 KUOW Public Radio in Seattle. I'm a cellist, a Seattle Chamber Music Society fan and co-producer with the SCMS team of these live conversations uh, recorded and distributed via podcast by the Society. We're coming to you on Thursday, January 17th, 2013 as the Winter Festival concerts from the Seattle Chamber of Music Society get underway this week. They begin on Friday, January 18th, and continue through Sunday, January 26th, in the Nordstrom Recital Hall at Benaroya Hall here in Seattle. We are uh, gathered today with our audience in the SoundBridge Learning Center at Benaroya for uh, this latest session with violinist and Seattle Chamber of Music Society Artistic Director James Ennis, and let's welcome him this afternoon. Thank you very much. Thank you. So welcome to your home away from home. Thank you welcome. very much. <laughs> it's good to see you again. <laughs> good to see you. I, I was thinking when we talked um, on the phone to kind of sort through some of our ideas. Um, so when, when Bach wrote his Brandenburg Concerti in 1721, um, he really had a kind of motley assemblage of, uh, of instrumentalists to deal with. He had this fantastic trumpeter. It sounded like he had some great gamba players and, and an amazing violinist there. A lot of a lot of resources to work with, and and that's that's your situation as well. You got you got a lot of people uh, that you're um, working with this year, especially with the with the Brandenburgs right, and some of the new right. stuff. And uh, I, I guess you know a lot of logistics to manage as well. Yeah, this festival was a little bit of a of a challenge putting it together, uh, just exactly for that reason. You know, there. Uh, it's such a wonderful uh, resource having the the fantastic Seattle Symphony right here, uh, and we were able to uh, work out uh, collaborating with quite a number of their musicians for these concerts. But uh, bringing people in, you don't—it doesn't make any. Well, it certainly doesn't make any financial sense, and it makes very little artistic sense to bring someone in for one event uh, during a festival. So, if you're going to bring in, well, to use one example, a harpsichord player for uh, the Brandenburg Concertos, well, why not have them play the other concerts that week? You think, well, okay, that's a good idea. And then you think, well, harpsichord, that generally tends to be early music. So do you want to have, do you want to typecast the harpsichord in that way? Well, not necessarily. Okay, well, let's find a 20th century piece with the harpsichord as well. Okay, well, then you do that. And then come the questions of, well, where can he practice? Who has a harpsichord? <laughs> like, where, where do we get a harpsichord? How does this work? Who tunes it? I, you know, all these questions that are things that, um, are, are new to me and new to the organization with you know, a harpsichord. I don't, I don't recall if we've ever had a harpsichord. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, lots of things like that. Uh, the puzzle of, uh, of putting the programs together. Um, you know, this first week of the festival, we have two pianists. The second week of the festival, we have none. And uh, for a chamber music festival, that's kind of unusual to uh, not have any pianists. So that obviously had an effect on, on repertoire and the way that the whole set of programs comes together. It's been, it's been a challenge, but it's been a lot of fun. There's something, uh, I guess, akin to building a puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, as we break down some of these pieces in, in, in a little bit more detail, um, we'll, we'll get a more of a sense of some of the logistical challenges <laughs> that you uh, faced. Um, one of the pieces programmed this year at the Winter Festival, and, and that's never been heard of the Seattle Chamber Music Society before, is Different Trains mm -hmm. by Steve Reich. Uh, tell us, first of all, about the very compelling premise behind this piece. When 
Steve Wright talks about different trains. What does he mean? Uh, well, the introduction uh, is very, in the score, is quite poignant. He, when he was a very young boy, I think maybe about one year old, his parents separated, and I can't remember which was which, but one of them uh, was located in New York and the other was in Los Angeles. And so he spent a lot of time as a very young boy traveling across the country by train with his governess. And um, this would have been in, I guess, the 1940s, 1939, yeah, 1940, right. 1941. He was born in 1936. Mm -hmm. so. And he said that later in life, he came to the realization that as a Jew, if he had been in Europe, he would have been traveling on very different trains, right. hence the uh, title of the piece. It was not written until many years later. It was uh, composed in 1988. Uh, and he was able to get interviews with his, his old governess, who was quite elderly at that point, and an old um, train conductor mm -hmm. uh, from, from that era, and uh, then also to uh, find some archival tape recordings of um, some Holocaust survivors uh, speaking of their experiences. And the contrast in this piece is quite um, poignant to mm -hmm. say the least. Um, it's funny, I've been talking to, to different people just over the last couple of days about this upcoming performance, and it's one of those things where I've been really torn uh, when people have asked me about it. Well, how much, how much do I say? You know, because it's, it's a piece that doesn't really require any sort of introduction. In a way, it's the type of piece that uh, it's best to come to it with with a very open mind, because it, it's there, it's unlike anything else I know in terms of the way the uh, the way it works musically, physically speaking, you know, the way that it's configured, uh, but also in in its uh, in its emotional impact. You know, there there are, there are a lot of questions in terms of putting it on, you know, because it involves um, a live quartet that is amplified, and it involves a pre-recording, uh, pre-recording, that doesn't make sense, a <laughs> recording of pre-recorded music uh, that features at times up to three other quartets. So there are sections where there are four string quartets playing in unison, three taped, one live, um, as well as the voices and the uh, train whistles that he had recorded and sampled and, and kind of digitally messed around with. Um, of old trains, both old uh, European trains and old American trains from the 1940s. And mixing them all together, I mean, it, it's quite an operation. Um, and uh, it's going to take a, a long and intense dress rehearsal, that's for sure. <laughs> but uh, what do you want people to hear? You know, how important is it to hear the words? How important, what, what do people lock into? You know, it, it's... Um, it's a very profound experience, I think, but there's also a certain ambiguity to it. You know, mm -hmm. he uses very short snippets of speech, some of which um, are quite uh, obvious in their sort of emotional intent, and others are uh, maybe a little more thought-provoking and, as I said before, am ambiguous. Um, so a little bit more about the, the way the piece is constructed. Um, of course, there's a natural pitch to people's speech and 
it's kind of a fun exercise to listen to somebody say something and think, well, how would I notate that both rhythmically and in terms of pitch, in terms of pitch? You could actually <laughs> write that down. And that's indeed what he does. So you have from Chicago, from Chicago, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and things like that. So all these little snippets of speech, he assigns, I don't know how to quite to say this. I wouldn't say assigns. He determines as close as he can what the rhythm and pitch is of these snippets. And they are doubled by certain instruments and used in different contexts. And the instrument will play it a few times, then you hear the voice come back. And it's really quite, uh, quite ingenious. And, um, and amazing because there, there, are certain, there are certain bits that one gets the sense that the music that you're hearing is coming from the speech. And then the other bits where you think, well, this is very beautiful music. And only after you've heard it, do you realize, oh, this is actually those words. Mm-hmm. You know, so they seem to both, obviously it's all coming from the words, but it doesn't necessarily feel like that when you're listening to it. It does not sound like one is a result of the other. They become so intricately linked. Uh, they really become one. It's, it's a fascinating piece. And one of those things where you just think, how, how exactly did he do this? It must have been incredibly complex and incredibly, um, must have been a very raw experience to compose this piece. I mean, it, it's, it takes a lot out of you when you're yeah. playing it, and I can only imagine writing it and living with that for, yeah. uh, for the compositional process. What, what I think is so interesting about it when you think of um, his influences when you start to break it down, and he's been writing since the... 60s, mm-hmm. and um, so this is 1988 um, when, when he does this with the Kronos Quartet. Uh, he, it, one of his first experiments was recording this, this uh, uh, street corner preacher in this, this tune called, or this mm-hmm. piece called I, It's, it's Going to Rain, and he had a couple of um, reel-to-reel tape recorders, mm-hmm. and, he, and he started playing this, these two recordings of this, and then they got out of sync. It was kind of an accident, and that experiencing that sound of things getting out of sync really intrigued him, and he ended up making this this piece called It's Gonna Rain. Mm-hmm. Then he started, um, you know, he was always listening to to, to jazz and uh, liked the kind of improvisatory world of jazz. I think he's been to see John Coltrane something like 50 times. He was a really great, a great influence on him. Got into um, drumming, African drumming, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, wore out his 78s listening to African drumming and enjoyed those interlocking rhythms. So um, then started working with instrumentalists. And, and this piece really is kind of a summation of all the, all the different inter- interests he had along the way. Yeah, but in, in another sense, it's so entirely different from so much of what he wrote where, you know, I think of these pieces like a lot of the pieces involving the, the phasing, like what you were talking about, mm-hmm. things get gradually out of sync and say, well, there's, Something he was fond of doing, there's, there's a famous piece called Piano Phase, and he used this a lot. But uh, you have, I can't remember how many notes are there in the, it's maybe 16 notes, da 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 and the pianos, uh, two pianos are playing them at exactly the same time, and then one starts to push ahead a little bit, and so it gets kind of all out of kilter until they end up exactly one note apart. So they're both playing in at exactly the same time, but it has been phased over one note. It's a really great uh, effect, neat piece, I think. But um, pieces like that, that are the length um, is kind of indeterminate. You know, it's like, well, do this for a while until you get to this, and then hang out on that for a while, and then 
do this and then hang out on that for a while. You know, the, I've heard the piece a few times. I've heard it take anywhere from about nine minutes to about 40. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so there, there are certain things in, in his music that, yeah, they kind of give this idea of, of improvisation or of, of, you know, well, take, take whatever time you need to make it happen, you know, kind of yeah. one of those sorts of events. Whereas this piece is so extremely specific. Mm. And for a composer that one doesn't always think of his music, of the pacing of his music, of being something that he gives a great deal of thought to, you know, in a piece like Piano Face, he says, well, I'll play it for approximately this many seconds or whatever. This piece, the different sections, because of the complexity and playing to tape, of course they have to be exact. And the pacing of it, we were talking about this yesterday in rehearsal, is, is perfect. Like it's, it's amazing. It's like when you hear a piece of Mozart or something that's exactly the right length and every section takes exactly as long as it should. And if any one of those things were slightly different, it would fall apart. Mm-hmm. And, and that's an incredible thing when you, particularly to me, when I think that we're dealing with minimalist music, you know, if you have something doing da 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 a minute and a half, well, what's the difference if it's a minute and a half or it's a minute and 12 seconds or if it's a minute and 52 seconds? But the pacing and proportions of this piece are perfect yeah. and it is important that it's exactly what it is. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting you, you, to make that subtle shading because I think a lot of, you know, uh, had a chance to talk with John Adams uh, just a few months ago when he was here with the symphony and uh, um, meeting uh, Philip Glass on a couple of occasions and, and reviewing that whole unfolding of the minimalist movement. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is, okay, we were doing these crazy mess with your mind concerts in the Bay Area and anything goes. But the, the amount of discipline that's required in these pieces, for as much as they you know, were nurtured in very experimental atmospheres, they, mm-hmm. um, they, they take a phenomenal amount of you know, synchronization and concentration and, mm-hmm. and all of those you know, disciplines that we bring to any kind of music that's on this, you know, this winter festival or in the right. summer. Yeah. Right. So maybe we should give people a little taste of it. Okay. I have just one little sample yeah. of it here. I think these are just the opening um, uh, measures of different trains by Steve Reich. That's the governess. Yeah, probably that's the, the first voice. Virginia. Virginia, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, then a retired Pullman porter, Lawrence Davis, then in his 80s, he used to ride trains between New York and Los Angeles, reminiscing about his life, Holocaust survivors, three of them, all about um, Steve Reich's age, and then 
um, living in America when he taped them, speaking of their experiences, American and European train sounds of the 30s and 40s, as you say, he's very specific in what, mm -hmm. he's, what he's recording and, mm -hmm. and sampling. Um, take us inside the rehearsals for these. I mean, what, what, is there a different mindset, a different approach? What, what happens with this music, again, that requires such synchronization, working with sound engineers, just a different level of, different kind of engagement? Well, one of the things that's very different um, I guess first of all, I'll say that that um, the, the the recording that we were just listening to and that I highly recommend to people. It's a Kronos Quartet recording that was made, I think, pretty much at the time of composition. Uh, it's a very effective recording. It's uh, it's a very effective piece on recording, but it's a different experience live. The way, of course, every <laughs> That's, that's our whole business, right? Oh, it's better live, it's better live. <laughs> it is better live, but it's also different live in that um, it's meant to be different live. The way that it is mixed together, uh, the composer specifically tells the performers that it should not sound, you're not trying to reproduce what the recording sounds like. The recording is mixed in a more or less flat way. It has to be. Um, things are, are uh, they, they occupy the same sort of sonic space. That's kind of the biggest problem with recordings, right? Everything happens right here. Um, in performance, the it, he specifically states you should not, as an audience member, ever be confused as to what's a recorded quartet and what's a live quartet. The live quartet has a different presence. Um, the voices are meant to be slightly louder in a live performance. There's all these uh, very... <laughs> Very intricate instructions. <laughs> but the, the rehearsal process is tricky because unless you were to have 12, 15 hours in the hall with all your equipment, with your sound engineer, it, then you have to sort of make, uh, make do with what you have. So we've been rehearsing it in, in a house. Um, with a stereo and you're given a performance CD. We're not actually using the performance CD that comes with the score. That was a Kronos recording to which they play. Um, a more recent version with uh, the Smith Quartet was done that has various improvements, I think is mm. fair to say. Um, anyway, the, the way that the, the CD that you get with it, uh, the way that it is formatted is all of the quartet stuff is running out of one channel. All the voices and train whistles are running out of another channel. This is done so that when it's put into the mixing board, your sound engineer can mix it in a way that's appropriate to the hall, that's going to be best for the ensemble. But what it means is, unfortunately, unless you actually have a big mixing board for your rehearsal, it means you've got two stereo speakers and you're hearing all the all the whistles and voices on this side, you're hearing all the quartet on this side, and you really need to be hearing both. The idea is for one speaker to be behind the violins, one speaker to be behind the viola and cello. Now, it's recommended, and I think for various reasons this makes a lot of sense, to have slightly more of the whistles and voices behind the cello and viola, but they also need to be able to hear the quartet. So <laughs> we've had the speakers set up, uh, but we've tried it both with them behind us and facing us because it gives us a very different thing. You know, if we have this, the way we're currently set up for rehearsals, if we have the speakers behind us, then the violins, 
get all the quartet sound and the viola cello get all of the and what ends up happening is we can we play perfectly together with the recorded quartet and the viola and a cello can't hear the quartet at all and are constantly wondering where in the world we are <laughs> and so then we switch so that we're facing it which means that uh, Emily and I on the violin are facing the train whistles and the and the voices and then we can't hear the quartet so you end up having to you, I, I, I don't know I think of pitch sort of occupying a certain sonic space you know and when, when everything is in a certain range it becomes very very hard to pick out detail but there might be one thing you can lock onto that's in a slightly different range of pitch. You say, okay, I can hear that through all of this scrubbing away that we're doing. I can hear that. That's what I need to lock onto. Yeah. Um, so it's, <laughs> it's complex. And then, you know, the voices are, get, are they're assigned these rhythms, but they're not exact. You know, you get things that no matter how precisely you try to notate it, it's not exactly the way the voice works. So if you have one instrument mimicking the voice, Maybe you can make a decision to bend the rhythm a little bit to be more like the pattern of speech. But at other times, there are various instruments imitating different parts of it that need to fit together in such an intricate way that you have to remain very, very rhythmically precise, even if it doesn't quite match up with the voice. Yeah. So you start listening to the voice, it's ever so slightly off, and it'll pull the whole group out of sync with the recorded quartets. Wow. It's a lot to think about. That's fascinating. You know, and all those issues, um, three-dimensionality of, of music or mm -hmm. um, precise notation of pitch or, or, or effects, um, the rhythmic uh, challenges that you talk about. You, you think that Steve Reich is worlds away from Bartok, but <laughs> you're, you're really dealing with a lot of those same issues, um, particularly in this, this piece that's going to be um, programmed this year. It's going to be on the Sunday concert on January 20th, a sonata for two pianos and percussion from 1937 by Bartok. And how rare is it to encounter this work? My experience with it has been that, um, that it's a piece that a lot of people know about. It's a piece that some people know, and it's a piece that very few people actually ever get to hear in yeah. concert. Um, there's there's a lot of logistical reasons for that. You know, you need to have two great percussionists. You need a, a big battery of, of percussion instruments. He has quite a bit of stuff up there. You need two pianos, um, ample rehearsal time. So it's a piece that I think uh, a lot of music lovers get to know off of a few kind of iconic recordings that are out there. But hearing it live is, is again, just an amazing thing because of the the depth of the soundscape and uh, and the I, I mean I love hearing two pianos live because there's always these stereophonic effects that you just can't get on a recording yeah it's it, a battery of seven percussion instruments timpani bass drum cymbals triangle snare drum snares off snares on sometimes uh, tam tam or gong and xylophone uh, it's it's played it'll be played in Seattle by by two pianos and two percussionists. Right. Early performances, they said they had as many as six percussionists on stage <laughs> sometimes, just to handle all, all the different instruments, which would have been a real show, but uh, um, not, not the case here. Right, but, right. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's a piece that, that uh, musicians get pretty excited about because it's, it's one of these great masterpieces that there's usually some reason why you can't 
end up programming it. So uh, anyway, we're very, very excited to be presenting it. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. I'm definitely going to be in the hall for that one instead of warming up for my Brahm sextet. <laughs> <laughs> I've got intermission to do that. Yeah. Um, 1937, um, and from all the playing that you've done of Bartok and your encounters with him, it sounds like it's a very uh, tense time. Um, Nazi rise to power made life very difficult for him and his friend and fellow Hungarian composer and ethnomusicologist Zoltan Kodai. Um, to get a sense of how harassed Bartok and Kodai were at the time, Nazi sympathizers were accusing them of an insufficiency of nationalism. Uh, that uh, accusation leveled at um, two composers who had done more to unearth the treasury of Hungarian folk music than probably anyone else in the, in the country's history. Um, well, what, yeah. there's always been a, a pretty big divide between Hungarian folk music and, quote, Hungarian folk music, which are very, very different <laughs> things, you know. And Bartok was really, he was interested in, um, in the actual ethnomusicology of, uh, of the area. He was not interested in promoting what he saw and what certainly proved to be very dangerous um, nationalistic tendencies of the time. Uh, yeah, it's funny. I mean, there, there are, you see this in a lot of places. You know, of course, Vienna is very, very pleased to take ownership of Mozart now. You know, Budapest is very pleased to take ownership of Bartok now. You know, things were not always so easy for them in their time. Uh, but yeah, that does seem kind of ironic as now that's one of the things people think of most with Bartok is, is his, uh, his studies into, into the history of Hungarian music and Hungarian mm -hmm. culture. Mm -hmm. um, the, 1937, he, um, he was actually protecting his manuscripts. He'd sent a lot of them to um, Switzerland and had this Paul Zocker, this, mm -hmm. this Swiss conductor, who was, um, gave him a place to, to write and um, take refuge, wrote the divertimento for strings there. And I, I understand that this... Uh, particular sonata for two pianos and percussion was a bit of a thank you gift to, to Paul Zocker as well as um, celebrating his uh, Zocker's championship of new music. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, Bartok's wife was, uh, was a pianist as, as well and right. it was uh, you know, a, a nice thing for them to be able to play it together but also somewhat of a, of a practical thing in terms of uh, Making some money, <laughs> yeah, you know, and and later on, a few years later, when Bartok came to America, um, he, I think it was at this point that he transcribed some of his pieces from the Microcosmos for two pianos for the two of them to perform, and those were actually played at uh, this past summer's festival. Maybe some of you heard those, and the third piano concerto that Bartok almost finished uh, was written for his wife. Yeah, just to to make some money, you know, mm -hmm. get her some performances, bring in a little bit of income. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, absolutely. If, very interesting <laughs> historical um, coincidence is January 16th, 1938. Um, yesterday, that many years back, was the, was the premiere of this piece in Basel, Switzerland. Oh. And uh, very interesting to me to know this little trivia footnote. Um, it was repeated in Budapest uh, not, not long afterwards. And um, Sir George Schulte was working as a rehearsal pianist with, and conductor with the Budapest Opera at that time. Mm -hmm. And he was called in at the last minute to turn pages for this thing, oh, which yeah. he said was terrifying yeah. because you know, the notes are flying by. It's a very uh, complicated piece. And also disheartening to him that while, while the piece was very well 
received in, in Basel a few weeks earlier, uh, the, the, the Hungarian audience didn't didn't like it nearly as much. It was mm-hmm. pretty mm-hmm. pretty cool to. It's there's, a, there's a beautiful recording you may know of uh, of Schulte play, uh, playing the piano with uh, Murray Pariah. So Schulte and Pariah playing this very piece. Um, is that the recording? Let's you listen have? to that now. <laughs> I love these these serendipitous moments. So, um, yes, uh, this and and we'll we'll comment on this afterwards. But this is the third movement of the sonata for two pianos and percussion. told me to look for passages that were rollicking. <laughs> that yeah, that's the first movement. <laughs> oh, okay. I, yeah. Sorry about that. I got, no, I got them right. switched around. That's the, oh, so yeah. the rollicking section. Yeah, so, um, um, yeah, what, um, what was your first experience with this piece, or how did it just... Um, my first experience was, uh, I guess it was when I was at Juilliard. I was at school, and one of my suite mates at the dorm uh, was a percussionist and he played this on on a recital and that was my my first so my first time hearing it was live which is always Mm. kind of exciting and uh, then it was not a piece that not a piece that I came across for several more years and it was actually that this Pariah Schulte it's Evelyn Glennie and David Corkle I think Um, and that'll be the next sample we hear I, I think I found that recording in like a bargain bin or something, and it was cheap, and I thought, oh, okay, I'll check this out. And um, I just obsessed over it. I, I, the piece was one of those things where, you, you know, the right piece at the right time where I just, uh, I bought the score the next day, and it was just an obsession for me and for my wife uh, for for a while. And uh, I just... I started. It, I started getting probably really annoying to it. I started like carrying it around with me, and anytime I'd be at people's house, I'm like, "Hey, do you know this piece? It's really great." Uh, it was like I was trying to sell something, um, which I guess now I am. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it, I guess that was probably about a dozen years ago. Yeah. And uh, oh, really? Yeah. So, so I've been hoping for a while that we'd have an opportunity to do it here, and uh, and now we do. Yeah. And and was that interest in it at that time? Were, were you were you recording Bartok at that time, or just it just you found this this record and it was a cool record? Yeah. You know, it was one of those things where I I had always I'd always loved Bartok, and uh, I knew that this was you know this was one of the important pieces of Bartok. You know, if you know Bart if you know Bartok or want to claim to know Bartok, you need to know this piece. And I didn't really know it. I'd only heard that performance that I really enjoyed, but I thought, you know, this is I need to I need to know it. So um yeah, and I'm so so glad I did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um it's it, it's got a 
wonderful variety of moods and, and characters. The, the second movie, we're not going to sample that today, but that's the, the whole night music mm-hmm. world. That we, mm-hmm. we discussed that a couple podcasts ago, but that you know, evocation of insects and bird songs and the, the forest and landscape at, mm-hmm. at night is, is a part of this language of this piece as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's an incredible... Um, Bartok has, to me, just an amazing intimacy in so much of his music. The, the type of... Um, the type of emotional impact that seems at times a little too close, you know. You know, you know. Sometimes you read a book, and in, in the greatest writers, I think of like Dickens. Occasionally, will write something, just an innocuous sentence, where you think, "Wait a second, I've thought that, but I've never talked to anyone about it because I didn't think anyone else thought those things." You know, <laughs> that that type of thing. And I think that Bartok, that happens sometimes, where the in the in the soft music that there are there are things in that emotionally that are very very personal and kind of I mean I've seen people get really uncomfortable in things like like the the second movement of the second piano concerto or the third movement of the fourth string quartet where it's just <laughs> it's a it's very close you know there which I love in music. There are people that, you know, everybody, that's one of the great things about it, right? People come to music for different things. And, and there are, I'm sure we've all had this experience, quite often happens at a symphony concert. Now, a lot of people will go to the symphony, and there's, I'm not judging this, there's nothing wrong with this, but people will go to the symphony to have um, not an interactive experience, you know, a very passive experience where it's like, I'm going to sit in a comfortable chair and the music is going to happen and it's going to come at me and I will engage in that as I determine. And how often have we been to a concert where something very special starts to happen, something very, very personal and very profound, and somebody <clears throat> clears their throat, crosses their knees, <laughs> they they push it away because that's not, that's not what they're there for. Yeah. I, I strongly believe this happens. Check it out. You be, <laughs> next time you're at some moment where everybody is on the edge of their seat, <clears throat> nine times out of 10, somebody will clearly reject the moment. And you know, it's, it's, that's the way it is. But you certainly see that a lot in, uh, yeah. in some of Bartok's music. I was, I was reading the, uh, or rereading the, Alex Ross, the rest of noise section on the minimalists, just mm-hmm. thinking about Glass and Reich in, in this mm-hmm. conversation today. And there's this account of um, a Reich piece, I, I'm fairly sure, but it speaks to your um, point here where, where a woman, it was being performed by the, the New York Philharmonic and, and this um, uh, older patron just could not take it anymore and came up and took off her shoe and started banging on the stage <laughs> d- demanding that the concert be stopped. Please don't do that on uh, Saturday. No, I, I don't want to give any... But no, I, I remember a performance one time that I was I was playing in the first half and I was out in the hall. Uh, it was at the NHK Hall in Tokyo, which is big, big, big. It's like 3,200 seats or something. It's just massive. And uh, it was a wonderful performance of the Firebird 1919 suite um, with Yvonne Fischer in the NHK Symphony. And that transition that maybe some of you will know what I'm talking about here between the, the Versus and the finale, where it just 
I don't know what the term is. It's like it boils down to almost no sound at all. Where it's just these tremolos in yeah. the in the strings, and it was the pacing was perfect, and the dynamic level was so low, and it was one of those things. Like I said, nine times out of ten, somebody will <clears throat> no no not doing that. This was one of those weird cases where you had you know, 3,200 people or whatever that were all just glued mm -hmm. to this. And he knew it, because you know that as a performer. And that he was able to go places with that, that it was the weirdest experience. Like, it was incredible. I'll never forget it. I felt like I was going to explode, because this intensity wow. in the hall and this sense of anticipation and the deafening impression of so little sound in so large a space was mm -hmm. just unforgettable mm -hmm. magic when people are wrapped like that it yeah is. yeah and yeah. For, as, as you say as a performer that's you kind of live for those moments yeah yeah you definitely do yeah well let's uh i do actually have this um sir george schulte and evan glennie and murray pariah and others uh, and we'll just we'll, we'll move on after this to the Brandenburgs but here is this third movement uh, from the Bartok sonata for two pianos and percussion <laughs> Just the textures of this thing has mm. obviously got to be one of the great joys of, of it. Um, yeah, yeah, the, um, the variety of sound and, um, yeah, texture, that's certainly a good, a good word mm -hmm. for it. Well, speaking of that, um, doing the Brandenburg Concerti, the uh, entire set on a concert later this week, and it's quite a departure in terms of the number of... Um, Musicians on stage, the the, the format, the, the period that we're um, delving into here. Mm. Um, what was exciting to you about taking on the Brandenburgs? Well, uh, everything. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it's just such um, from a you know from a self indulgent standpoint, it's uh, an amazing thing to be a part of that uh, playing playing these concertos. You know, you think about what. What we do as an organization, you know, we present what we consider to be the greatest masterpieces of instrumental music. And because of the sort of traditional format um, and, you know, size constraints of the stage of our former <laughs> concert hall and lots and lots of reasons, we had never played what can very legitimately be considered to be the 
most important and influential instrumental music ever written. You think, well, that's a pretty good reason to do it. You know, you can say that virtually everything else we've ever played here owes something to these pieces. Um, but yeah, it's going to be, I think that, I don't know this is the case, but I would guess that, uh, you know, the first Brandenburg, we're probably going to have more players on stage than we've ever had for one of our, one of our performances. So it's going to be, um, it's going to be quite festive, yeah. say that. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things that I was thinking about when um, I saw this list of performers and as artistic director, you recruit these folks and you did a Mozart uh, violin uh, concerto and, and mm. violin and orchestra pieces um, recording six, seven years ago now. And, and uh, remember you coming to the station and talking about yeah. that. And you were kind of, I think, like a kid in a candy store in the sense that you'd gotten to choose this orchestra and, and yeah. you know and direct this orchestra from the violin and and I wonder if there's some of that energy I, I definitely need to see need to see some professional help but too much of a control freak <laughs> <laughs> or just I, or, I, you know making music with people you want to yeah. make music with. I mean yeah. you had these you know concert masters from great orchestras across the country with you know and, and a similar you know star-studded lineup here for these Brandenburgs so yeah. um, I don't know if it's control or just a, a jolly good time. <laughs> it is. It, it's a jolly good time, that's for sure. And, and something that I think is going to be uh, unique about this performance we have is that the personnel, of course, is, is different. You know, I, there's not a single person other than the harpsichordist and the double bass player that are playing in all of them. Uh, the violinists, I think I play in four of them. I think Amy Schwartz-Moretti plays in five of them. The cellists, I think, each play in three of them. Um, so each group is going to have a different dynamic. And a, each performance, I fully expect each of the concertos to have kind of a different stylistic take on things, which I think is going to be really fun. Because one of the, one of the frustrations, I think, of... Uh, pieces like the Brandenburg Concertos is, you know, they were written a long time ago and a lot of people have spent a lot of energy trying to determine how they should be done stylistically. You know, well, what is the correct way to play Bach? And I mean, what are even the correct instruments for some of these things? I mean, there's a fair amount of debate as to you know, these... There's a lot of things that have been simplified over time. You know, people say, yeah, well, the second one has a trumpet. And it's like, well, it probably has a trumpet. They're not exactly positive that it was really meant to be a trumpet per se. And the fourth one, it's like, well, is what are flauti deco? Nobody really knows. <laughs> you know, it's been kind of decided now that, well, that probably means recorders. And it's like, well, yeah, I guess, maybe, or maybe it doesn't, you know. so. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of questions with Bach, and you hear the Brandenburg concertos, and certainly on recording, and most of the time, if you are able to hear them as a set in performance, it's because there is one person who is giving their musical vision of what that is. Some people are gonna be totally in line with that and say, yep, that's how I wanna hear my Bach, but most other people are, are not. <laughs> you know, you can't please everybody all the time. So we're gonna have a performance where I guarantee, you know, that any any of you here will have 
one that you'll say, yeah, that's the way I like my Bach. That one, maybe not so much, but it's not going to be the same one for all of you. And that's going to be the fun thing is, you know, talking about it and at the intermission, getting together with your friends. And afterwards, hopefully this is something that will resonate for quite some time. And people saying, you know, I really loved the way they approached the fifth concerto. First concerto, I'm not so sure. Oh, nonsense. I loved the first concerto. And <laughs> because each one of them is going to have, as I say, just a slightly different slant because a slightly different combination of people and maybe one person will decide to take a little more of a leading voice in, in the interpretation for one or less in the other. That, I'm really excited yeah. about that aspect. Yeah. Well, in that spirit, um, when we when we talk about these, I, I kind of lucked out today because I happened to pick the Kronos recording, which you liked, and you have, <laughs> have this Schulte recording that you uh, have in your collection. As James says, the interpretations are all over the map. You know, yeah. Some are period instruments, some are modern instrument. Um, I, I got these you know, in a various combinations of KUW Classical Library and YouTube. And part of the fun here will just be seeing what you think about some, yeah. some of these. But here is that, uh, that, that very first Brandenburg. We'll just take the opening. And it certainly speaks to you know, the uh, phenomenal number of musicians yeah. that you'll be coordinating. So we'll listen to a minute or so of this. One thing that occurs to me in listening to that is, you know, we came of age as musicians. You're much younger than me, but uh, I mean, we always had lots of period instrument recordings, lots of historic, very romantic recordings. So much swirling around out yeah. there, and and I, you know, you've answered it in part. But how do you sort that out at a, at a rehearsal? How do you, you know, uh, come to grips with with so many different potential approaches to Bach? Well, I think part of it is. A responsibility on my part to to know the people I'm bringing in and if there's someone who is going to be very dogmatic about something then it's probably not going to work for a collaboration of this nature um, I think that uh, the musicians that are going to be going to be coming in for this are very open-minded people that will come to what they consider to be the ideal solution for that piece and that performance rather than trying to fit this piece into some preconceived concrete ideas they have about what must be done with this kind of music. You know, mm -hmm. I think that uh, there's probably going to be a certain amount of give and take, you know, where, where certain people are going to say, well, this is a little bit more this way than I would have liked, but I can buy into that. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, listening to this recording, it made me uh, just kind of laugh a bit about how this is this first Brandenburg concerto, you can learn a lot about people and their sort of 
priorities or, or allegiances, you know, by saying, oh yeah, Brandenburg won, and, and do you know that one? And there are people that say, oh yeah, that's the horn one. And that's, there are people that say, oh, that's the oboe one. And people say, <laughs> oh, that's the violin one, right? It's like, well, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, you gotta love live recordings, right? Where a harpsichord is louder than an entire string section and as loud as two horns, that's great. I don't think you can expect to hear that on our stage. <laughs> anyway. Um, We'll play a little bit of the uh, the sixth, uh, just a, a little section where just indulging in these great sounds of the, of the lower strings. And I, it, I think it speaks to the fact that um, I, I don't know all the history that well, but I, but I think Bach did really have you know quite a motley crew of, of people to write for. I mean, obviously yeah. some you know extraordinary trumpeter. Um, and, and why he chose to make this so um, Bottom heavy, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but mm. it's so the the lower strings and and whatever kinds of gambas they were played on, it's just a it's a beautiful sound. Right? Yeah. This this sixth uh, concerto has no violins, so everything is somewhat lower in in range. Um, but it's you know I, every day I I decide a different one is my favorite one. I just got obsessed with the sixth the other the other day on the airplane. Actually, I was just listening to it and looking through my score over and over, and just thought, how did he do this? I mean, the complexity of the of the writing, the the way the voices intertwine, and just the the incredible creativity of it. I just think it's. It's just you tip your cap. It's unbelievable what mm -hmm. he did with this with this piece, and no one's ever really attempted, to my knowledge, to do anything quite like it before uh, since. Mm -hmm. Sixth Brandenburg. Harpsichord there. Well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm just wondering the size of that harpsichord. It's got to be bigger than this room to make that make sense. Um, it, it's, I mean, it's such a fantastic piece to hear on a recording. Um, but one, once again, I think it's one of those even more amazing things to understand in, in person. You, you you listen to it on a recording, you kind of hear these da 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 da, and the to understand the canonic writing in person, the, the way that the different voices are switching back and forth. I mean, it's, it's quite something to put it together in terms of, uh, you probably played it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, yeah. just making sure that everyone is really fitting in so you don't have these da-da, 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 da and it is seamless in these different entrances, but yeah. um, just amazing, well, just amazing. I, the, the thing that was striking me um, <clears throat> as I was listening to some of these again and reading about them again and thinking of, because they occur throughout our lives from you know the time we're very young as as musicians you you get the third Brandenburg 
you know, put in front of you and in the Merle J. Isaac arrangement and you, <laughs> and you go, go to town. But um, uh, there is so much, um, so much the spirit of, of collaboration and, and, and innovation. Like, you know, again, what happens if we put these kind of odd combinations of instruments together, the, the give and take. Um, and, and Bach as such a cosmopolitan figure, like you say, this, this great German counterpoint and um, the, the Italian Concerto Grosso and, and Tiffany and uh, three-dimensional sound and how do we play with this call and response, French dances. I mean, um, it's, it's, it's just rich. In, yeah. In a, in a, in yeah, rich and so varied, you know, you could, there was some famous story that it actually was said about Beethoven, not about Bach, but it was someone famous that, that said, you know, well, well, who are your three favorite composers? And he said, Beethoven, Beethoven, and Beethoven. And I think, well, you could totally say that about Bach, because like what you were talking about, the, the different things at which he was so great, you know, mm -hmm. unequaled. Um, and as soon as you start to kind of fall in love with one of those or start to, to identify one of those types of things with Bach. You know, you, you can think, oh, the instrumental music, you know, the Brandenburg concertos, the sonatas and partitas for violin, the solo cello suites, the orchestral suites. Then you think, oh, but what about the cantatas? And then you think, well, what about, you know, all these, these, these fugues? You know, you, you start thinking about Bach, the incredible um, technician of writing music. And then you think, well, what about the melodies? I mean, he wrote what are still definitely the, you know, among the most beautiful melodies ever written. And you, and you can, that's an entire side of Bach, you know, mm -hmm. that, that uh, I think actually not enough people think about yeah. is how much, how much Bach there is that is just among the most beautiful stuff you've ever heard. Mm -hmm. You know, it's easy to get kind of intimidated by all the, you know, five part fugues and whatnot, but, mm -hmm. uh, but then you listen to, you know, some of the choral preludes and you go, oh, yeah, so nice. <laughs> yeah, I um, I had a class. I forget what it was called. Um, there was modal counterpoint. But William Bergsma, did you ever know of, of, of Professor Bergsma? Mm -hmm. Many would hear who was a fine composer. Um, he was he was a teacher of Philip Glass, coincidentally right. at, at at Juilliard, and um, he was he was getting up in years when I studied with him in early nineteen eighties and he would look at our assignments of trying to write Bach and, and he would try to, you know, he'd go up on the board and try to figure out a few things. And then he would just get out his pocket score of well-tempered clavier and he would go to, <laughs> to some example and, uh, and then he would get up there and fix things and he goes, Bach is always right. And he would, just, <laughs> and he would put, the, put it back in his uh, uh, pocket. But it, it, as, as an artistic director, as a violinist, as a, uh, I mean, he's, he's obviously a guiding light for you and for all musicians, you know, however you variously encounter him. Count yeah, him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's something I think also to be taken from, uh, how to describe this in a, in, a, in a comprehensible way, but there's, with Bach, there is a, there's an intellectual consistency that is remarkable and admirable that is never, I use the word dogmatic. Am I going to actually use dogmatic twice in the same hour? Uh, Bach, I love the idea of, I guess I would say, yes, this intellectual consistency that is not an end to itself, that he is willing to break his own rules 
when going after a more important goal. You know, we were talking about that just at, at, in terms of musicians, you know, that people that they'll be so devoted to a certain idea of how something has to be that they will try to fit a square peg in a round hole or vice versa because they can't let go of this idea. And, and it's funny how with Bach, um, you will find things where every rule that, of course, we only call them rules because it's what Bach did, but he will decide, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this differently this time because it's more beautiful. And there's such a lesson to be, to be learned in that interpretively, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the just most maddening and grotesque things that I've come across recently is people assuming that there are mistakes in Bach because it is too harmonically advanced and too beautiful in in a traditional romantic sense for him to have possibly meant that. And you see people doing that in the cantatas. It's like, yeah, I know he didn't actually write this harmony. It actually, but this sounds too pretty. We have to change it into surely what he would have wanted. And you think, well, yeah, there's a place for people like that. But... (laughs) Bach doesn't touch on that place in no, his guitar. Not much. <laughs> um, I, I think we're we're uh, we're going to have to wrap it up here for, <laughs> for time because I know it's it's very busy for you. But um, uh, one last question, just in terms of you know, we we began with with Steve Reich and we we end with Bach, and you're really ex, you know kind of expanding the, the the time range of 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 repertoire for the Seattle Chamber Music Society. Some very contemporary things, some very old things. What what. Is the attraction of doing that, and what opportunities does that give you? Well, for me, I just, uh, my personal interests are are very eclectic, I guess. I think that as a a presenter, I think one has to just have faith in one's own love of the repertoire uh, and say, well, this is music that means a lot to me. I hope it will mean a lot to you too. You can't second guess your audience, but um, I think that as an organization, we're in a wonderful position to be able to uh, do pieces that, you know, I think of the, probably, I think it's the most contemporary piece we're doing is the is the Steve Reich, the different trains. And I think the, the oldest pieces that we're doing are, well, we're doing a few things around that era, but basically the Brandenburgs. Now, both of those are uh, are pieces that require extra effort to just to stage them. You know, the number of players involved in the Brandenburg, or all of the issues of uh, of sound production and engineering for for the different trains. And uh, I think it's a it's a credit to the organization that uh, we're in a place as an organization where, uh, and this just makes my life fantastic, where the the staff and the board say, if you want to do it, we'll make it happen, mm-hmm. because we're in a position to do so. And that's, uh, that's a kind of a dream come true for an artistic director. That's good. Well, and the next time we talk, uh, we'll talk about when you when you add new elements like that, how it makes you hear the traditional things in a different way, those juxtapositions. Ah. I, I know you love to, to play with those <laughs> and think about those. And, and that's why this is a continuing series, and right. we'll, we'll take that up in, that. The, in the summer. James Ennis, thanks again for a great conversation and for being so generous with your time, as always. So let's thank James. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. 
That brings this latest classical conversation gathering and podcast to an end. Find our series of podcasts online at seattlechambermusic.org. Also get your tickets and winter festival information at that site. These winter concerts by the Seattle Chamber Music Society, including a family concert and other special events, continue January 18th through the 26th in Benaroya Hall in Seattle in the Nordstrom Recital Hall. James Ennis is the artistic director for the Seattle Chamber Music Society. Our engineer for these podcasts is Bill Levy. The programs are produced by me and Seattle Chamber Music Society Director of Education Programs and Operations, Jeremy Jolly. From Soundbridge Learning Center at Benaroya Hall in Seattle, I'm Dave Beck from KUOW Public Radio 94.9. And again, thank you so much for being with us today.